gain a strong audience. So the executives from Hanna-Barbera and CBS put their heads together, and after a lot of planning, after a lot of deliberation, they came up with a solution. And in September of 1969, the year that my dad started his senior year of high school, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? premiered on CBS Saturday morning cartoons. And uh, the show has had just a ton of success over the years. It's been remade over and over again uh, and enjoyed a lot of success over time. Now, if you've seen an episode of Scooby-Doo, any of the variations of Scooby-Doo, you have a pretty good idea of what you're in for with the plot line. A ghost of some kind, or at least a perceived ghost, causes criminal havoc all over the town. And so Shaggy and Fred and Velma and Scooby and the whole gang get to work in trying to uncover the mystery of the ghost. And sure enough, even though it takes a little effort and they kind of fall into it sometimes, they eventually end up trapping the ghost. And, and what they find is that there's more to this ghost than meets the eye. They unmask the ghost, only to find it's really just a flesh and blood crook who put on a hoax. But, but the Mystery Incorporated team solves the mystery behind the ghost. Well, we've got a week here between our end of First Peter, which we finished last week, and the beginning of our next series, which is called Speak. Pastor Al will be back next week to start that series. But during this week in between, we're going to have a little ghostly investigation of our own. Old North is going to become Mystery Incorporated for the next 30 minutes or so, and we're going to investigate a ghost that also comes with some presuppositions attached. We're going to investigate a ghost that a lot of times is misunderstood or even ignored by certain Christians. Now, the ghost that I'm talking about is not some bumbling criminal that's waiting to be unmasked. The ghost that I'm talking about, of course, is the Holy Ghost, as he was referred to in the King James Bible, or the Holy Spirit, as we more commonly refer to him today. I think the Holy Spirit tends to be one of the most misunderstood doctrines in, among Christians today. So we're going to take a look today at a topical message on getting to know the ghost. As a matter of fact, that's our central idea for the morning. Our big idea is that we need to get to know the ghost. We need to invest our lives into getting to know the Holy Spirit better, into living in fellowship with him, in recognizing his work, and in, in responding to his work. We need to get to know the ghost. But why? Why, why is it so important to, to get to know the Holy Spirit? What makes him so special? Or how? How can we get to know the Holy Spirit better? Are there, are there some hurdles that we need to step over in order to walk in a deeper relationship with the Holy Spirit? Will it make any difference to our life whatsoever in getting to know the ghost? These are the questions that we ask this morning as we come to God's Word. So why don't I pray and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for the chance to come together during this busy holiday week and to, to think exclusively about you, even if it's just for a short time. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and I pray that we would leave this place knowing him better, uh, that we would leave this place motivated to a life of fellowship with him, exploring the riches of his character, responding to his work in our lives. We pray these things together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to John's Gospel, John 16. You'll find that on page 902 of your Pew Bibles, which, by the way, if you're here and you're visiting maybe and you don't own a Bible, please take one with you. Uh, we'd like to give that to you as a gift. But John 16, verses 13 and 14. Now, we're going to begin with John 16, 
And we're going to end with John 16. So you feel free to hang out there in your Bibles. But I have to tell you, as a topical message, we are going to be all over the scriptures today. So if you like Bible surfing, which is like channel surfing, you can attempt to keep up. But don't feel the pressure to do that. Feel free to hang out in John 16 because we'll start there and we will get back there. How can we get to know the ghost? That is the question that we are after today. How do we get to know the Holy Spirit? We're going to look at four ways that we can get to know the Holy Spirit better. And the first is that we get to know the Holy Spirit by understanding his identity. So if we want to know the Holy Spirit better, we got to get to the root of who he really is. We have to know his essence, his nature, his identity. And the first thing that the Holy Spirit, we can recognize about his identity is that he's a person. The Holy Spirit isn't some impersonal force. He's not uh, a heavenly, ethereal energy that just exists in the cosmos. The Holy Spirit is actually a person. So peek down at uh, verse 13 of John 16. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, When the Spirit of truth comes, so he's talking about the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And you might have picked up on a repeated word there in that verse. It's the word he. Jesus clearly classifies the Holy Spirit here as a person. He could have called him an it. I mean, the rules of the languages of the Bible would have allowed for that. There are neuter pronouns, but Jesus clearly calls him a he. And there's a whole lot more uh, than just grammatical evidence to, to demonstrate that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, a person. In fact, a sweep of the scriptures would show that he, he possesses the attributes and the actions of a person. If you study the Holy Spirit in the Bible, you'll find out that he speaks, that he has desires. And, and he exercises a will, just like a person does. He has a real personality. He loves, he grieves, and so much more. So it's, it's obvious from the scriptures that the Holy Spirit is not some unknown entity, just this mysterious entity that you cannot know. No, no, he is, in fact, a person. You've probably heard of or uh, seen the movie Star Wars, right? In fact, I think there's a new one coming out here. And in that movie, they talk a lot about the force, don't they? I mean, the force be with you, and there's a good side to the force and a bad side to the force. And the good guys and bad guys use the force to throw each other around the rooms, and that's kind of cool. But, but the force, at least my interpretation, is some kind of mysterious, unknowable, impersonal lifeblood of the galaxy. And, and this is a lot of the ways that some people think about the Holy Spirit as the force, but... He is nothing like the force. The Holy Spirit is not like the force. He's knowable. He has a personality, and you can have a real relationship with him. You can know him. In fact, you should. Another dimension to the Spirit's identity, the second dimension that we're going to look at, is that he is God. So the Holy Spirit is a person, but he's not a person necessarily just like us. He's a divine person. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 5... A couple named Ananias and Sapphira got themselves caught up in a lot of deception. It was bad news. And uh, the apostle Peter essentially calls them out on this scheme that they were trying to pull. And he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? He says, you haven't lied to man, but you've actually lied to God. And so Peter makes this connection. He calls the Holy Spirit God. And if that were not true, it would not have flown in the first century as the Christian message began to grow and flourish. 
And, and again, there's so much more. It's just a broad scope of biblical evidence to support the Holy Spirit's divinity. He possesses all the omnis, right? You've probably heard of these big words before, omnipresence. So the Holy Spirit is not limited by time and space. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. So he's all-powerful. He's omniscient. So he's all-knowing. The Holy Spirit is, is of the same essence. He's, he's made up of the same stuff as God the Father and God the Son. And so he is clearly fully divine. He is a divine person. Now, you might be saying to yourself, that's all great. That, that's a lot of really good theology. But what difference does that make in my life? Does that make any difference to my relationship with the Holy Spirit? Well, I think it does. Because the truth of the matter is, if you want to get to know a person really, You've got to get to know their essence. You've got to get to know their identity. If you're going to marry someone, you need to understand more about them than just their favorite color. You need to know what makes them tick and what ticks them off, frankly. It's free marriage advice for you. That one's free. But you need to know their essence because that way the relationship isn't superficial, right? It's built on a deep knowledge of the person's identity. So the question is, how would you categorize your relationship with the Holy Spirit? Do you really know him? Is it just kind of a superficial, surface-level relationship? Or do you understand his essence, his nature, to know him and to love him as a person and as God? Now, the second way that we can get to know the ghost, in addition to knowing his identity, is by interacting with the Bible. And this is huge. We get to know the Holy Spirit by opening up the pages of Scripture and interacting with the text. Now, you might say, what's the big connection there between the Holy Spirit and the Bible? Why are these two entities so connected? Well, the answer is found in a big biblical word. We're going to learn a few biblical words today. And the answer to this one is the word inspiration. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul writes to the young pastor and he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. And that phrase breathed out there that Paul uses to describe the action of bringing the scriptures to life is, is part of the same word that the Bible uses for spirit or Holy Spirit. It's a word that means breath or wind. And so the connection is that God the Holy Spirit literally breathed out the scriptures as Peter tells us in his second letter, he carried the human authors along, still maintaining their personalities and their context and their cultures, but he was the wind that carried the ship along, and he breathed the scriptures into existence. You know, sometimes when we look at a beautiful piece of artwork or we hear a beautiful piece of music, the, the comment will be made, that was inspired. It was incredibly inspired. And what we're implying there is that there was something deep, something significant that brought that piece of art or that piece of music into existence. Well, when it comes to the Bible, there's a divine, a perfect inspiration that caused the scriptures to come into being. The Bible is the Holy Spirit's perfect divine masterpiece that we ought to look at and stand back and say, wow, that is inspiring. That is an inspired piece of art. And the applications here, as I said when we started this section of the message, are huge. Because whenever you open up the Bible, whether it's here on Sunday mornings or whether you're at home having a cup of coffee on your deck, whenever you open up the scriptures, you are interacting with the divinely inspired work of God the Holy Spirit. 
He breathed out every chapter, every verse, every single word, nothing by accident. And so the application is, open up the Bible, right? Open it up by yourself. Open it up with a group of friends. Get into a discipleship team here at Old North that opens the Bible together, right? When we talk about our discipleship process, we, see, we say we need to grow in a relationship with God's word and God's people. Open it up with your kids. Tonight before they go to bed, grab the Jesus Storybook Bible or the Big Picture Bible or just grab any old Bible and read the scriptures with them. I know it's hard. I know you're busy. I get it. It can sound really, really intimidating to talk about reading the Bible, but the truth is, if you want to get to know the ghost, if you want to get to know the Holy Spirit, you've got to get to know the Bible. Now, maybe you're here and you've been a Christian for 100 years. You say, I know the Bible. I know the stories of the Bible. I just want to encourage you this morning to maybe rediscover the awe and the wonder and the trembling at the fact that God has chosen by his grace to speak to you in an objective, clear way. And if I can say it without you getting too mad at me, stop thinking that you know everything about the Bible because you don't. The scriptures are a deep well that we need to plumb over and over and over again and to interact with the breathed out work of the Holy Spirit with fear, with trembling, and with enthusiasm. So as we talk about getting to know the ghost, as Mystery Incorporated begins to uncover some more clues here, we know that we need to know who he really is at his essence. We need to interact with his work in the scriptures. And, and the third way that we can get to know the Holy Spirit is by engaging in the life of the church. If you really want to know the Holy Spirit better, then you need to participate in the life of a congregation. That's because the Holy Spirit's work is a corporate work. Uh, author and theologian Wayne Grudem makes a pretty strong statement when he says that the work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. Now, there's, just, there's so much we could say about the Spirit's work among the corporate assembly of believers, but we're going to focus on two this morning, just for the sake of time. And the first one is that the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the church. He baptizes us into Christ, sharing, giving us a share of Christ's death, resurrection, even his life. But as he does that, he baptizes us into Christ's body, the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 just has so much good stuff to say about this. In verse 13, hear God's word from the Apostle Paul. He says, for in one spirit, all were baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The Holy Spirit is the agent that brings us into Christ and brings us into the church. And, and this passage, just this one verse, brings us some fantastic clarification on the, the often misunderstood idea of spirit baptism. Let me just be clear about this one. Every person that places a saving faith in Christ is baptized by the Holy Spirit into the church at the moment of their conversion. There is no second work of grace that we need to seek after or experience. The Spirit plunges us into Christ and into the church at the moment we are saved. That's one of the blessings of responding to the gospel, that we are baptized, that we are immersed into a new community. Now, like, uh, like many of you, I imagine, our family went to a cookout on the 4th of July, uh, on, in the evening on the 4th of July, and my brother-in-law made me a killer hamburger. 
but he cooked it on a charcoal grill. I don't know if there's any charcoal grill people in here, but I, I use a gas grill. I think it's just a little bit less work, which is probably why I use it. But I don't know much about charcoal. But as I was eating that charcoal burger, which was delicious, I started thinking about the church. You see, the thing about coals in a charcoal grill is that they are designed to burn together. And when they're all together in that little container and the grill is lit, they burn brightly and evenly, and they can make a really, really good hamburger. But what would happen if you would take one of those coals out, with a pair of tongs, obviously, and set it on the ground? Eventually, that coal would just cool off. It would quit burning, because coals were made to burn together. And that is exactly the same with Christians. We are made to burn together. We're made to live together and to be together. In fact, that's why the Spirit baptizes us into this community, certainly one of the reasons because we were made and designed to live together in community, gathered for God's purpose. And that's why it's so important for us to connect into a local congregation, because that's simply an outworking of what the Spirit's already done inwardly in our lives. That's why it's so important that we make these Sunday morning gatherings such a priority, and I greatly appreciate you being here this morning, even through a very busy summer, because we were made to burn together. The Spirit baptizes us, immerses us into this community, and we need to respond to that by connecting in a local congregation. Now, another connection between uh, the Holy Spirit and the church is that He gifts us to build up the church. The Holy Spirit gives gifts to the body of Christ for the purpose of building up and encouraging the body of Christ. Again, from 1 Corinthians 12. By the way, if you want to do a study of the church, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14 is just solid, solid gold. But take another passage from there in verse 4 of chapter 12. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And, and this idea of spiritual gifts, I think, is probably one of the most misunderstood in, in all of the Christian life, especially relating to the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to give you a couple of those misunderstandings and then uh, a biblical perspective on them. The first misunderstanding is that certain gifts are more important than other gifts or more spiritual than other gifts. This was actually the problem in Corinth when Paul was writing the letter. It's one of the reasons that he wrote the letter, to correct this kind of thinking. In chapters 12 through 14, he gives this great insight using the illustration of a body and its parts. He says, the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker, like the baby toe, if you've ever stubbed your baby toe, you know how important it is. He says, those parts are indispensable. In other words, every single gift and every single person, every member of the body of Christ is significant. That's one common misunderstanding of spiritual gifts. The other common misunderstanding is the purpose of spiritual gifts. And this is really one of the dominant themes of those three chapters in 1 Corinthians in, in 12 to 14. 12 verse 7, given for the common good. 14 3, for upbuilding and encouragement. 14 11, for building up the church. Now, the message is pretty clear, isn't it? The Holy Spirit has not given gifts to the members of the body of Christ so that you can feel good about yourself. This is hard for us to understand in an individualistic culture. Spiritual gifts are not given for the purpose of self-expression. They're not given so that you can feel like you're making a contribution and pat yourself on the back. Neither has the Holy Spirit given gifts so that the church's programs can just run like a big machine. 
He has given gifts to build up people, to encourage people to build up and strengthen the local church. So, of course, a natural question that follows from, from this passage is, how are you using your gifts to build up the church? Are you? Do you even know what they are? Are you encouraging and building up others within the body of Christ? Are you prayerfully speaking God's word to other people, words of encouragement, words of mutual upbuilding? Because as we use our gifts within the church, we get to know the giver of the gifts. We get to know the ghost as we exercise our gifts within the local congregation and as we do it for the purpose of upbuilding. Now, by way of application, there's a couple of resources that I want to recommend to you. And I pray that these aren't just you know, little resources I talk about in the sermon, but ones you actually use. The first one is a helpful little Bible study called Six Steps to Loving Your Church. It's a short, concise, but very faithful six-week study of how to love the church. As a matter of fact, Nathan Harris and I are walking through this resource right now with our praise teams through the summer. It's something that you can do with friends over a charcoal grill for a few weeks over the summer. It's a really, really helpful study. We're really enjoying it. The second resource is John Stott's little book called Baptism and Fullness. Again, short, concise, to the point, but it is a very, very faithful treatment of the Spirit's work in the church. And so if you're interested in either of these, uh, you can talk to a pastor, you can shoot me an email, you can call the church office, and we'll make sure that, uh, that we get one for you. So we're getting to know the ghost, we're getting to know the Holy Spirit, and to know him better, let's just track back a minute, we know that we need to understand his identity, right? The core of who he is, the essence of who he is. We need to be interacting with his inspired work in the scriptures, and then we need to be engaging in the life of a church, because we know that the Spirit baptizes us into the church, and, and then of course he gifts us within the church, so the Spirit's work is corporate. Now, but lastly... We get to know the Spirit by experiencing His work in our lives. So the Spirit's work is, in fact, corporate, but it's also personal. And the Holy Spirit is not just a theological topic to be studied, even though it's a fun theological topic. The Holy Spirit is a person whose work is to be experienced. And one of our first experiences with the Holy Spirit as Christians is that He regenerates us. The Holy Spirit is responsible for the work of regeneration in our lives. Now, you might be saying, regenerate what? Regenerate who? It's a big word. It's a biblical word, and it's a word that we see in places like Titus 3. Paul says that God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration of the Holy Spirit. So according to this passage, regeneration is a work of mercy. It's, it's not a work that we can do on our own. In fact, we contribute nothing to the work of regeneration. This is fully a divine work of God. The Holy Spirit comes to us in a state of spiritual death, and he causes us to come to life, giving us a new heart, a new mind, a new will, one inclined to love and obey God. That's a foreign concept before the Holy Spirit regenerates us. And this realization of the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration carries some wonderful applications with it. Because if we understand the fact that we cannot bring ourselves to life, in fact, rebirth is another way to translate the word regeneration. You might think back to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 on that topic. And Nicodemus asks a pretty good question. How can I cause myself to come to life? How do I get back in my mother's womb and, and be born? And well, the answer is you, you cannot. That is a work that only God can do. It's truly a miracle. And, 
And when we think about that kind of work, it should cause us to worship deeply. It should cause us to reflect on the fact that God is the hero of the process of salvation as he accomplishes that salvation in Christ. The other application that comes from reflecting on this work of regeneration is it should make us extraordinarily humble. We realize that we contribute nothing to this process. This is a free gift of mercy that God brings us to life in Christ in our state of spiritual death and rebellion. That's regeneration. Now, another personal experience with the Holy Spirit is his work of sealing. The Holy Spirit seals us. So if you thought that seal was just a 90s pop singer, you're mistaken. The Holy Spirit seals us. In fact, in Ephesians 1, Paul gives some great insight into this ministry of the Holy Spirit. In verse 13, he says, You, so I'll say to you, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, and believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit is God's seal on our lives. Now, in ancient days, uh, there would be a seal placed on the outside of a letter. And this, this seal, a lot of times a wax seal, would have a lot of different purposes. The first is that it was a mark of ownership. Dignitaries and, and royals would have a unique seal that marked their territory. It marked their letter. It would leave a personal impression on this message. The other thing that the seal did is it secured the contents of the message, right? It was not getting out. It was sealed, and that seal could not be broken prematurely. Let me give you one more illustration. I don't know if you've been watching the World Cup. Uh, our family has. Uh, we've really been enjoying it. It's, it's a fun way to kind of connect with the world, I think. We can be very limited in our perspective at times, so I like watching the World Cup and hearing these other countries sing their national anthems with gusto. It's exciting. We love yelling in our living room and screaming, and I really love the British commentators. I just feel smarter when I listen to BBC World News and when I hear these commentators uh, on the, you know, how it saves another one, and here he comes, takes it past the midline, and he gets in, and I just feel like I, I, don't, I can't even understand him half the time, but I just feel good listening to it. So we're watching the World Cup, uh, and in one of the games recently, I think it was Germany and Algeria, they went to extra time, and Germany scored a second goal that really sealed the game. As a matter of fact, as I was looking at uh, headlines afterwards, one of the, the headlines on one of the websites that covered the game uh, said, second goal seals victory for Germany. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean to, to, to seal the victory with that second goal? Well, it means the game is over, right? It means there's no way the other team is coming back. Germany, in this case, has put their permanent mark on the game, and there's no turning back. Victory is assured. You don't make that statement that they've sealed the game unless the game is over, unless there's some closure that's taken place. That is what it means when God the Holy Spirit seals us. He's God's living mark for every single Christian. And that seal reminds us of God's ownership, that we belong to him. The Holy Spirit seals us also in a way that secures us for God. Verse 14, the guarantee of our inheritance he provides a security and an assurance that guarantees our preservation and inheritance in heaven. Now, this is a little speculative, but I have to wonder if when the Holy Spirit seals the heart of a new Christian, that Michael, the archangel, doesn't put his arm around his buddy Gabriel and his best Ian Dark interpretation say, 
Well, that seals another one for Jesus. I don't know. It's just speculative. But that's what it means to be sealed. And that should give us, friends, remarkable hope. How would you answer this question? How do you know that you will wake up tomorrow and still be a Christian? How do you know, not think, how do you know that you will wake up tomorrow and still be a Christian? The answer is the ministry of the Holy Spirit's work in sealing us. It is God's strength and God's faithfulness that will bring us through to another day. And that should give us great hope and encouragement. Now, a natural question that might follow that truth is you might say, well, that's fantastic then. If I'm a Christian and my life is sealed by the Holy Spirit, then what's the point of obedience? What's the point of walking forward and ongoing maturity in the Christian life? And, and it's a really good question. It's a fair question. It's also not a new question. And it's also a question that's answered in the final element of the Spirit's work in our lives. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. So he regenerates and seals and also sanctifies us. This work of sanctification has massive implications for the Christian life because God is, not, is committed. He is, in fact, committed to not leaving us the way that he found us. In Romans 6, Paul asked a similar rhetorical question about this motivation, that if we're sealed, what's our motivation? And here's what he says. He said, are, are we to continue in sin then because we're not under law but under grace? question he says by no means now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God the fruit you get leads to sanctification now this big word simply means to to be set apart or to be utterly distinct for a particular purpose and applied to Christian salvation that means that we as believers are set apart for as God's people and for God's purpose and this happens both initially in our conversion where we're immediate, our position is immediately set apart and changed. We go from estranged to the children of God in a moment. But our sanctification is also progressive. It also describes the journey of the Christian life, a long, tedious journey of ongoing repentance and change and conformity into the image of Jesus. This is the kind of sanctification that Paul talks about when he says the fruit that you get leads to sanctification. He's essentially saying that if you've experienced God's grace truly and you have been sealed, that kind of grace changes you. It changes everything. It changes your perspective on life and obedience and, and, and everything else that you could possibly think of. All your priorities are altered because of the grace of God. And so sanctification is this progressive, ongoing work of experiencing growth and maturity. And in other places in the scriptures, we see that that work of sanctification is associated and tied to the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but sometimes uh, I feel like I'm moving at a snail's pace on that process of sanctification. Sometimes I feel like I've stalled out, and you maybe feel that way this morning. I just want to encourage you with the truth that you press on because God is working within you. Paul makes that statement in the book of Philippians, talking about how we work out our salvation with fear and trembling for or because God is working in us to will and to work according to his good purpose. So the Holy Spirit is strong to continue and maintain this work of sanctification. And so if you're feeling weary, he is in fact strong and committed to your sanctification more than you are even. And he's committed and eager to bring you to maturity in Christ. In fact, that's uh, where we're gonna close this morning, this idea of being in Christ or with Christ.
I promised you that we would end up in John 16, uh, and uh, I'm going to keep that promise. So if you still have your Bibles open to John 16, I want you to look down at verse 14. We read verse 13 earlier. But take a look down at verse 14. Again, this is Jesus speaking about the Holy Spirit. He says, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That is a simple little verse, but there is so much happening there. Because as we talk about getting to know the Holy Spirit, getting to know the ghost, as we talk about following him in the process of sanctification and growing toward maturity and growing up together even as a congregation, there is a goal in mind. There is a destination in mind. And that destination is Christ. The goal is Christ. I sometimes get the question, uh, is your church a spirit-filled church? if you've ever had that question, but I get that question sometimes. And usually what the person means when they ask me that question is, are your people demonstrative during the singing? Or does the preacher yell a lot? Or do you have big altar calls? That's usually what they mean when they say, are you a spirit-filled church? But can I tell you today that a truly spirit-filled church is a Christ-centered church. Did you pick that up in verse 14, that the Spirit's desire is to glorify Christ? It's his desire to bring us to maturity in Christ, to conform our hearts and minds to Christ, taking the work of Jesus and applying it to our hearts and to our minds, the work of Jesus, the one who lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we should have died, and yet he took our punishment, dying in our place, that if we would exercise a simple faith and trust in the sufficiency of his work, we can be saved. And my prayer for you this morning is if you've never made that saving commitment in Christ, that you would make it today. I think it's appropriate then as we close to come to the Lord's table, as we think about the Holy Spirit's ministry of glorifying Jesus and leading us to Jesus in the process of sanctification, we come to a time where every Christian is welcome to eat and to drink and to remember and rejoice at the way that God has accomplished our salvation in Jesus. And, and really, I pray and hope that you've gotten to know the Holy Spirit a little bit better because of our time this morning. I pray that you, you have a better understanding of his identity. I feel that you, I pray that you're motivated to interact with his work in the scriptures, that you are motivated to engage in the life of the congregation and getting to know him and also experiencing his work in your life, knowing that as we get to know the Holy Spirit, we will get to know Christ. As we get to know the ghost, we will get to know the one whom he longs to glorify, the one that we should long to glorify, our great Savior, Jesus Christ. With that, let me pray. Father, what a blessing to be able to plumb the depths of the character of your spirit, to talk about just a few of his works. We could spend a lifetime studying and reflecting and worshiping on the depth of the Spirit's character and his work. So I pray that today would just be a, a bit of wetting of our appetites to know him, to know him better, to take away some of the mystery and facade associated with the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would clarify our thinking about him. And you would help us, in fact, to not just engage in some kind of exercise of theology that only happens in the mind, but this would have an outworking into our lives, that we would learn to worship your Spirit that we would learn to respond to his work of sanctification and submit to him and bear the fruit of the Spirit, to exercise the gifts that he has given us within the setting of the church for the upbuilding of the church. 
Father, thank you for speaking to us today, for your continued kindness, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to come to the Lord's table now, and uh, this morning we're going to invite you to come, to stand, to participate, to walk forward. Uh, we've got some ushers, I believe, and elders, and I'm going to invite to come down uh, as I pray here in just a moment. And then you can come forward and participate. Uh, we want to encourage you, don't leave early. This is a solemn, special, special moment to remember the work of Christ, and I encourage you to just engage in that, this sense of remembering, this sense of thinking exclusively about Jesus. We're going to be off to a hundred other things this afternoon. But let's train our minds for just a moment to reflect on the work of Christ on our behalf. Ushers, I'd ask that you come now as I pray. Father, thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus, for the reality of his work applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit. Forgive us for thinking about the atonement absent from the work of your Spirit. And as we come reflecting on what Christ has done for us, let us also reflect on how that work is applied to us by the dynamic power of your spirit. Father, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Ushers, you can come. Mm -hmm.